0: You are now listening to episode 79 of Doc Fermento Discovers the World. The show is still titled that for now. I'm thinking about that. So, here I'm talking with L. Amber O'Hearn, a friend of mine, and we are discussing... Baby led weaning. This is a process by which parents can help develop healthy children. I think it is, you know, an incredibly important subject. I do a little dabbling and studying ancestral health concepts. I find that an overlooked topic is moms and babies. So um, we cover this a little bit, this subject, um, optimal weaning, baby-led weaning. I hope you get something great out of it, and perhaps you could share it with others if you know someone who could benefit from such info. A lot of folks out there don't have a a culture around them, you know, a community of wise elders to teach people how to properly raise their infants. And then, uh, in this conversation, we moved on to a little bit of, uh, Amber's particular diet, uh, her experience as a carnivore, which I find rather fascinating. And, um, I have some links in the show notes to uh, maybe some experiments you could try. Uh, One of them is titled Eat Meat, Not Too Little, Mostly Fat. That's an interesting link. Uh, Follow it. Read all about it. There are links to uh, Amber's AHS-16 talk. AHS is the Ancestral Health Symposium, which is put on by the Ancestral Health Society uh, USA. There is a New Zealand version as well. Uh, Three links I've provided there. Amber's AHS talk, Amber's diet, and some info on vitamin C, which I find interesting. I hope you love this episode, and as always, I thank you for listening. All right. How are you this evening?
1: I'm doing very well. Yeah? How about you? Uh, Yeah. Okay. I'm excited. I'm about to move houses. I've gotten the key to my new place, and I have several days before I have to be out of my old place, and so I'm taking my time.
0: It's always an exciting event. Hopefully, not (laughs) too fraught with peril. (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's what I'm hoping as well. Right. How about you?
0: Uh. Well, I'm recovering from tonsillitis, so.
1: Ugh. Oh,
0: I had an amazing experience with tonsillitis this time. I didn't get strep, as far as I know. Mhm. And it normally, um, I I frequently get this like every year or two. And I. Uh, I had a a relatively low pain experience, and yeah, I'm not sure. I uh, I got. How lucky. did you know
1: it was tonsillitis?
0: Uh, well, just I have years, decades, and decades of experience with it. Uh huh. And I can, I know, like before pain even starts, that it's going to happen. My, Interesting. My uvula, I can feel it. Um, I can feel it in my throat feels like I need to clear my throat and then then I know how I have swelling and then soon follows pain and it usually uh devastates me where I'm bedridden for a week in the most excruciating pain imaginable wow um and a pharmacist friend of mine got me on uh, some Chinese herbals which I I'm highly skeptical of (laughs) but i took them religiously and it was a relatively pain-free experience and i didn't take any pain meds and wow uh, and it cleared and passed and hopefully i can talk for an hour tonight
1: (laughs) we'll try it out
0: so um i wanted to cover oh by the way this is the show there's no pre-show it's all the show all right. Often I'm talking to people for a while, and they're like, okay, well, when we get to the show, I'm like, oh, wait, I should tell you now, this is the show.
1: I had a suspicion <laughs> that that might happen, so and, I went ahead and pressed yeah. my recording when you said that.
0: Okay, so I'm not um, <laughs> here to sneak up on you or anything, and then I always like to tell people that if you say anything in the course of the show, uh, you could, we could take it out before I post it. It's not live or anything. Okay. And... Um, yeah, it's uh, the show is explicitly tagged in iTunes, although that's not my gimmick, but talk freely is what I'm saying. All right, and uh, I wanted to cover two things: baby-led weaning, and your curious dietary approach. <laughs>
1: Those are two of my favorite things to talk about. Oh,
0: they're good. <laughs> it was that, or, or punk rock bands, and
1: we could go there.
0: Reimagining <laughs> yourself. Yeah. I um, uh, I met you at the uh, ancestral health symposium uh, the last year, I think it was.
1: Yes, that was. A lucky break for me to get to meet you. I really like meeting people who I can talk to freely, like you just said. Um, there aren't very many people, I think, who just want to have real conversations.
0: Yeah, I was really surprised. I'm, I'm friends with Nick, Nick Mailer. And he mm-hmm. said he was going out to dinner with some friends. And I, uh, I I'm just not very comfortable in social settings. But I went along anyways, and it was a delightful time. There were, I believe, four or five of us, and we went out to a a really amazing meat-based restaurant. We went to
1: Black Belly. That was Zuko's find. Yeah. And Georgie Ede was there, and Nick Mailer, and you and me. And um, that restaurant had the most fantastic marrow and oysters, and I had tartar. they had everything that I needed to have a perfect <laughs> meal. so I was really pleased
0: yeah and it just an uh, amazing conversation. Um, it's funny um, I think maybe your little the group there might have a reputation of being zealots or something because <laughs> of this carnivory and keto and these words that everyone thinks you know it's a Zealous lifestyle.
1: I get that a lot because um, people think that... I, I think that they think I, my diet is constructed to make a point or that I have rules in the way that someone with a religion would have rules, like you can't eat this and you can't eat that. And it's true that I do adhere pretty strictly to... Rules of a sort, but it's—it's it's not because it's written in stone. It's not because I think things are bad necessarily. It just improves my health, and so I do it.
0: Yeah. So this was a course of discovery for yourself that you came across this. Yes. This type of eating. But let's start with the baby lead weaning and your talk at AHS, which was excellent, and I'll provide <laughs> link. In the show notes to that talk at AHS, um, it was about this optimal optimal weaning strategy. Correct? Yes. Yes. What is this baby-led weaning? What's the why, what, how?
1: Well, baby-led weaning is a term for um, the strategy of feeding your baby not by taking food of some, something that's like what you're eating, um, but then mushing it up in a blender and feeding it to them by spoon. But instead of doing that, giving them whole pieces of food just like what you have. And um, the main reason that we cite for blending our food is that since babies don't have teeth and they haven't really learned how to interface with food yet, they, they might choke. Um, but it turns out that Babies have pretty good instincts not to choke, which, if you think about it, isn't really that surprising. And they will tend to just suck on or chew on or, um, you know, teeth on food that is like ours until they're ready. And if something small gets toward the back of their mouth, they usually just push it forward with their own tongue. So this whole baby-led weaning movement is about that. Uh, It's also that the baby leading is about the timing of it so you you don't start feeding your baby on a schedule rather you wait until they're showing signs of wanting to eat which are pretty easy signs they're like trying to grab at your plate mm-hmm. Sh- and showing interest
0: and I guess we should say the weaning process what we're starting with our presumption here is the mother will be breastfeeding the child ideally
1: Yes, and yeah, that's a good point because there's often confusion around the word weaning to mean the end of breastfeeding. And the whole period from when you start to introduce foods until you are no longer providing any breast milk, that's all weaning. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. When a child is breastfeeding, I believe this is a ketotic period of their lives or something like that
1: yes so it's it was a surprise to me to learn that babies are in ketosis when they're breastfeeding it's not heavy ketosis Mm -hmm. and it's not enough that it's going to get picked up in urine strips which aren't really very sensitive but it's a known fact it's not even very controversial Um, it's in textbooks, that that babies are in ketosis while they're weaning. They're converting fat into ketones to support their brain growth. That seems to be the real reason why. And the ketones can provide both energy, fuel for the brain, and actually raw materials for constructing the fat and cholesterol on the other side of the blood-brain barrier.
0: Right. So we have a few important things happening here in the breastfeeding process, we're encouraging uh, optimal cranial facial structure and growth. And then through this weaning process, we have to decide what baby's first food is going to be. And from my experience, that's usually a rice, a fortified rice food that most mothers choose.
1: Yes, that is, if you go looking for baby first foods in a grocery store, that's definitely what you'll find.
0: So I guess the plus is it's gluten-free. The rice, (laughs) that's true. So there's a positive thing. Um, But um, could there be some problems, you think, with this?
1: Well, some of the problems are addressed by the fortification, because it, it's known that for babies to grow, and the brain is in an extreme period of growth at that time, um, even after birth, babies' heads grow much more than in other species for us. And, and there are micronutrients that you need. So, for example, you need iron and iodine and zinc. You need the fatty acid DHA and vitamin D. And if you don't have enough of those, there could be problems that can cause cascading problems down the line. So it's it's been recognized that iron that uh, rice by itself is just not going to be enough, and you have to fortify it. Um, I don't know if I would say it's a problem per se, in that we're definitely seeing babies survive, but it wouldn't it doesn't seem to me like it's very natural as a food that we would normally be weaning onto if we had to put back enough nutrients to make it sustainable so in some places definitely canada i think south africa and probably other places if you go to the government agency site that advise what to present as first foods, meat is included among the best first foods because meat naturally has all of those things.
0: Excellent. So you answered my next question, and that was going to be, what would be your suggestion for the more optimal food? The answer, meat.
1: Yes, that is my answer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And also, I know in your talk you said, like maybe a first food wouldn't be a food, perhaps just the bone of what you're eating.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. So in my own personal experience when weaning, um, one of the things that I did with my youngest child is that I, I would give him the bone from my lamb chop or my steak, and he would just take that and teeth on it, and that got him used to the consistency of the bone. To um, he, There would be little little bits of juice or small pieces that he could suck on. And so it was a very natural transition for me to just start leaving a little bit of meat as time went on. And in the beginning, it was just really a teething tool.
0: Yeah, this, this makes sense to me because, you know, we... Um People in the ancestral health community might get criticized for trying to replicate some caveman lifestyle, but we have all these devices that are actually replicating what we need. We have teething rings and all these things for babies to chew on, right? Right. And, and, and they're rubber or plastic or silicone. And I'm not saying those are poisonous or going to leach toxins into a baby. I'm not into that stuff, but there's obvious need inherent in the child because they just do this naturally.
1: Right, that's a really good point. So I agree that we wouldn't necessarily want to replicate everything from paleolithic times. I'm pretty happy, for example, to be using this magnificent technological device to be speaking with you from far away.
2: <laughs> right.
1: I'm I'm not going to give that up and I don't think that we should but how long have we had those rubber silicone teething rings before that I mean even a hundred years ago what were people using for teething I don't know but it seems that you don't have to go very far back before a bone would be a very natural thing for that to be
0: yeah and then the important thing for us say it's too late for me I have three children that are well beyond the weaning stage. But say for a new mother, there's some choices and some decisions that need to be made about what these, how how to feed their baby. And I feel I, I talk to moms, uh, I have family and it seems that no one really knows. They, they're just so clueless. Um, Even a lot of moms just use formula instead of breast milk. And then once you're in that category, real foods, don't soon follow you know they're already in the industrial food mindset and everything should be packaged and sterile and you know cooked and processed and pureed so I like this bone technique
1: there is a lot of fear about disease spreading through germs I'm certainly not a germ denier Um, I think that many of our diseases do come through the vector of germs. However, I, I always feel a little bit dissatisfied when someone says they got sick because germs were going around. It seems to me germs are always going around. And what's making somebody sick is their body's susceptibility, not so much the fact that there are germs around. You can't you can't get rid of all the germs. And and there are, of course, theories abounding that the the seeking to destroy all the germs in the environment is causing as many problems as it is trying to solve.
0: Sure, sure. We live in a a stew of critters, bugs, bacteria, germs, viruses.
1: I will say, and this is pure anecdote uh, I have three children as well and the only one that I weaned purely on to meet was so healthy that for his first he, he started going to preschool part-time when he was two and before he wow. reached kindergarten age he never missed a single day of preschool due to illness, even though every other child was out multiple times throughout the year. And I I like to think that maybe his diet had something to do with that. I don't really know, but it it was so remarkable that people did remark on it.
0: Yeah. And how did you find his uh, temperament? Was he uh, even-keeled? Did he have the uh, hangries or...? How was the toddler process?
1: It was easy. Um, I, having had three children, I know better than to put all of the responsibility of the environment. I've seen temperamental differences be, between my children that just seem to be naturally who they are. But I think that he was generally content and amenable and happy.
0: that's awesome yes so let's take some first steps after uh we're gonna you're gonna be eating um a whole foods based diet whatever that means to the the mom (laughs) and then she has to make some choices to to feed her baby but and you're recommending so post just a bone some additional meat and i'm guessing broths and things like this play a role as well
1: broth was the other first food that I used. Um, I would actually just make a very plain bone broth or maybe stewed meat and have that in a bowl. Um, so it's in its own juices, a lot, all of those nutrients and fat are in that broth. And I would just give him some of the broth off of my own spoon and, um, As he got older, again, like with the bone, uh, I would give pieces that he could swallow and eventually be able to gum down on and chew.
0: And in the meat and broths are the essential requirements to build a nice, healthy brain and body?
1: Well, at this point in time, he was still getting most of his energy, I would say, from breast milk. So what he's doing now at that point is transitioning to another food that is high in those nu- those nutrients, um, the, the micronutrients I mentioned, fat, which is a great source of energy, and protein, which is going to be needed for structural things. And so part of the, co- the thing that went into my choice is not just that I knew that Meat foods delivered everything that was essential, but if you anytime you give something else, your if your baseline is meat, you're you're by necessity giving less nutrients almost almost without exception. So you're exchanging something more nutrient dense for something less nutrient dense, whereby nutrients I include energy.
0: Okay. I'm trying to catch up with you here.
1: So, for example, if so you were to reducing choosing...
0: variety, but we're wow. increasing nutrient density.
1: Yes. Where nutrients includes energy. Because mm. a lot of people uh, are measuring nutrient density per calorie, and that would penalize energy. So, I just wanted to say that explicitly.
0: I see. And do you think it will all... Or do you have any fears or reservations that by not introducing plant plants yes. uh, initially or soon that they'll be, I don't know, like less likely to eat them in the future or not develop a taste for them or anything like this?
1: It's possible that they wouldn't develop a taste for them, but whether or not that's a concern is a different concern (laughs) so if I, I think that if I do not introduce early certain foods that have bitter components like brassicas for example or onions it's I do think that it's quite possible they might not develop a taste for it I don't really know um if that's something that is easier to do earlier because of an innate process with taste or if it's easier to do earlier because there isn't social pressure. I I myself had no problem later in life for example developing a taste for beer or coffee uh, which are ostensibly pretty terrible tasting things <laughs> mm-hmm. even though I, I came to quite love them.
0: Yeah they're, they're things children don't like right those bitter mm-hmm. those bitter flavors right correct and
1: i didn't have i didn't have any disadvantage by not getting them as an infant
0: <laughs> beer and coffee <laughs>
1: <laughs> i still drink coffee i don't drink beer these days
0: well good for you every
1: once in a very long while just cuz just because i really did develop that taste for it mhm mhm through sheer will <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah so i know i'm trying to think of like this this baby led weaning process and if a mom presents a bunch of a variety of foods i um mostly they'll just be spit back out especially greens you know baby foods they just get spit out um, mm-hmm. and yet a mom might discover that her baby loves pears you know, like, or applesauce. So mm-hmm. I would imagine there needs to be some type of rules regarding baby led weaning, but just because the baby loves fruit doesn't mean that should become, you know, the food that you feed them.
1: Fruit is an interesting case because I think that children, we, I mean, we have a sweet receptor and it's a positive reinforcement. And if you, I, I think the common wisdom is that if you present fruit first, you're not going to get the child to eat anything else ever. <laughs> um, so the uh, when I have looked at guides to getting your child to eat a variety of foods, they always get you to start with the things that they're most naturally likely to have an aversion to. But then the fact that children tend to have an aversion to bitter-tasting things gives one pause about why you're trying to get them to eat it as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I know after reading books like uh, the Salt, Sugar, Fat about industrial foods and how they're basically evolutionarily designed you know, to change a person's what they call It's like a set point for sweetness. And they Mm -hmm. actually raise this in children to the point where things have to be incredibly sweet and semi-salty to to taste sweet to them. Yes. That's a scary thing.
1: Well, I've experienced it myself. Um, When I first went on a low-carb diet a long time ago, um, even though I was eating a, a variety of plants at the time, the sweetness was quite limited, and I found that within a short period of time, even carrots are turned out to be really, really sweet, but I know that before that, I thought of them as sort of bland.
0: For sure. I think a great example of this is um, cooking a carrot whole, unpeeled, and then in a stew or roasted and then eating it. It is in, it is surprisingly sweet, even with that the most bitter part of it still intact. Mm-hmm. It just it just maintains this in insane sweetness, especially if it's grown in some soil <laughs> as opposed to whatever the magic whittled carrots are in the little plastic bags at the grocery store.
1: Yeah, they're babies. Those are baby carrots, Brian. right, sure they are.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They must have these, like, magic lathes where they just lathe down big, gnarly, ugly carrots grown in toxic soup.
1: That's, yeah, sort of what I imagine, too.
0: Let's talk about your process um, of, um, so where were you at dietarily, and then there was some change in your diet, and what precipitated that?
1: Well, I initially went on a low-carb diet for vanity reasons because I had gotten fat, and when I first got fat, my my bias was that a vegetarian diet was the healthiest thing. I was raised vegetarian, and all the books that I read about health when I was a teenager were about vegetarianism, and so I got strict about that and it didn't help. And then I even tried being a vegan for a while. I was exercising a lot, and I was feeling depressed. And none of that, even though I got fitter, I wasn't losing that weight that was making me feel so socially uncomfortable and unhappy. Hmm. And I had heard about a low-carb diet and I had this experience of traveling abroad, having a very hard time finding vegan foods and just capitulating and saying, okay, I'm going to eat what everybody else is eating. I'll have this meat and then I'll, I'll just get back to my regular diet when I get home. But when I got home, I've, I found that I had just somehow naturally lost some weight. And for some reason, that moment made me think maybe my assumptions are wrong. And that's when I started looking into low-carb diets in earnest. The Doctors Eads had just published Protein Power, and I devoured that book. They had tons of references in the back that I looked up and just became so fascinated with the science. And so a low-carb diet became my regular diet for most of the time since 1997, Oh,
0: wow. Yeah, yeah. that's quite a while ago. Yep, yeah. Yeah, I guess uh, Protein Power was way ahead of the curve.
1: Yes, it definitely was.
0: It still seems to be a, a very lasting book that didn't need many revisions.
1: It is, and I would still recommend that book, even though there are some excellent books that have had the benefit of access to more recent science, like The Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate Living, I think it's called, the one by Finney and Volek, and some other books that have come out subsequently, but I agree, it, it is an enduring book, the science in it is very coherent.
0: Interesting. So personally, so there's a the low-carb diet, is the high-fat diet, part of the, that which follows often, it's the LCHF diet, low-carb, high-fat. Is that important to you?
1: It is, but I find, for me, it comes naturally. I never, I never, even though I had um, weight issues, and I did limit animal fats, I never was on a very strongly calorie-restricted diet. Um, And I think that limiting fat is something that you learn if you're spending a lot of time trying to limit calories because fat is so efficient at transferring them. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I know that some people who start a low-carb diet because they're so used to avoiding fat because they've been told to or because they fear that they wouldn't actually be able to lose weight. Um, That didn't happen to me. I find um, I am able to eat enough fat. Protein seems to be self-limiting and it, it just works out to a balance that I feel is appropriate.
0: I see. So kind of like eat the protein and the fat will follow because it's just inherently in there.
1: Certainly with my current diet, the, the cuts of meat that I choose are very fatty. And if they're not, it's distasteful to me. And so I will change that by adding butter. I actually eat pure lard. Um, I've been getting into making hollandaise lately. So... The, I just find lean protein to be kind of dry and not a pleasant mouth experience.
0: Yeah, it's the it's like the bad version of livery, if if there's such a thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like I, I dehydrated
0: like liver. liver, though. Yeah, it's the mouth yeah. feel. It's just there's there's so much involved in it. And yes, uh, for me, like sometimes I'll buy super lean cuts because they're quite inexpensive. Um, but then I know in order to make them palatable, I just put fats on, uh, mm-hmm. preferably butter. And, you know, I just keep it simple, salt and pepper.
1: I know that some people have learned, <laughs> like we were talking about before, they've learned an aversion to eating fat. They'll. It's not uncommon to see people take a beautiful steak that has fat all around the edges and cut the fat off and leave it on the plate. Mm-hmm. And so Well, fat makes
0: you fat, so you don't want to eat it.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> it also gives you heart disease.
0: Right, cuz it clogs your arteries.
1: Yes, cuz you know, it's solid at room temperature like Tom Naughton says, so is a banana.
0: <laughs> that's pretty good actually. <laughs> I'm not a huge Naughton fan, but that's a good one. It is. Yeah, I tend to, uh, when I have the opportunity, the way I like to slice things is kind of like if I have a large cut of meat and it has that fat rind around it, mm-hmm. I just cut my steaks up like a pizza. And it's like the <laughs> perfect proportions. And then uh, there's this this reward at the end, like the crust, but it's fat. yeah. Do you have or believe that there is a, a hierarchy of meats? Are some better than others? Say for you personally or in general?
1: Well, I could approach that from a couple different areas. If you're talking about my favorites, if I had to choose one or two things that I had to just stick to those for a, an extended period of time, I would pretty much go with ruminants. Basically, I would go with cow and sheep. Those are my favorite. If I go for a long time without one of those, I will really, really miss them. Whereas if I go for a long time with those, I don't necessarily get a hankering for something else. However, I tend to eat a lot of pork. I love um, salmon and mackerel and oysters, even though they are leaner and i do like chicken too as long as you're as long as someone else is going to eat the breast
0: <laughs> i hear you there that that can only go with in a chicken salad which means homemade mayo or something similar
1: right but now that's from a sort of taste and feeling of satiation perspective mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if i were going to try to theorize about what might be better for you. I would also choose the beef and the pork because the fat content tends to be about half monounsaturated and about half saturated and only a small amount of polyunsaturated fats, which I think is biologically appropriate. I've heard arguments that if you're feeding a lot of grain to those animals, that the polyunsaturated levels will come up. I don't know the specifics of that effect. Okay. Um, but I would be concerned about getting too much omega-6 fatty acids at a certain level and not at all concerned about monounsaturated or saturated fats. That's the, That's nutrition.
0: So... Do you feel comfortable buying CAFO meat?
1: It's definitely not my ideal. When when I have more money, I will always spend it on meat that I think is more sustainably raised. Because although I think the allegations about the contributions of Livestock to the environment are overstated by a a large factor. I do think that factory farming is a contributor to it. And that if the more an animal is going to graze naturally, it's going to return carbon to the soil and help it be sequestered. I want to support that. I also actually care about the lives of the animals that I'm eating but what it comes down to for me is that I need to eat meat to be healthy. And so I'm. to me, for health effects, I have not yet seen a difference in my own health based on whether I'm eating sustainably grown meat or CAFO meat. So when it comes down to this is my paycheck and I'm going to buy it, it's not a choice of, um, you know pasture-raised meat versus some vegetables. It has to be meat.
0: I see. Since it has to be, then you need to get what you can get. <laughs> yes. Yep. Right. I understand. I'm in the same way. And I think I became perhaps a little neurotic over it. Um, and I got to the point where anything I identified as CAFO meat became um, an evil that mm-hmm. I wouldn't participate in.
1: Ethically, you mean?
0: Especially. Um, yeah. yeah. And then also because I thought, I don't know. I, I knew of no reason that would be bad for my health, and yet I was convinced it would be for some reason. Well... It was just some bias, I imagine, that oh, if I'm eating this perfect animal that was raised in its evolutionarily appropriate manner, I'm you know, I don't know. It was like this, I guess I I got stuck in in a bias. And it was actually quite recently that I had some real financial problems and we stopped buying from the Amish slash Mennonite farmers that we get our meat from. And I went to local butcher shops and I was just bemoaning the fact on Twitter and complaining about my the woe of having to buy butcher shop meat. And, you know, friends of mine were like, calm down. (laughs) You will maintain your health. You are not going to make your children sick. Yes, you know that there's some, a better option, but you're not making a bad decision. Mm -hmm. And I kind of needed to hear that.
1: Yeah. I hope that, as time goes on, we will have more and more economical options for better-raised food. But I do think, at the health level, it's a fine-tuning. If if it if it's having an effect, it's at a much smaller level. You're, like, I don't know the percent. If it's 85 percent or 99 percent, but you're most of the way there just by eating the right kind of food. The animal's going to take care of a lot of the toxins itself so that you don't have to.
0: Yeah, and to that note, um, a lot of people are afraid of these organs that are filters. I hear this a lot. Like, oh, don't eat liver. It's the filter of the toxins that the animal eats.
1: I don't think that's literally how it works. Right. <laughs> <It's> just <laughs> This is the
0: conventional. This is what people say. Like, Mm -hmm. whoa, never eat a shellfish. They're the ocean's filters.
1: Mm -hmm. So I think the liver is part of its job, but it has a lot of jobs. The more I learn about the liver, the more fascinated and in awe I am. But I think one of its jobs, and the kidneys as well, is to, you know, isolate and, and excrete. But the important word there being excrete toxins for you
0: yeah it's not a, the, a storage warehouse of every bad right. thing you've ever eaten
1: now I have <laughs> heard theories that fat can do that sequester away toxins that is that you can't get rid of quickly enough but I I don't know how much truth there is to that
0: Yeah, I hear this a lot when people lose a lot of weight doing um, any type of high-fat diet or ketogenic, or intermittent fasting, if they're extremely overweight, that they often get uh, very lethargic or sick. And some people suggest that it's due to you processing your own fat, which is laden with toxins. And I have no idea if there's any truth to that whatsoever.
1: Yeah, uh, that's not something I know either.
0: It doesn't matter. We have a job to do. We need to eat. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the other thing, you know. I think people are afraid to eat.
1: Absolutely. I think if you look hard enough, you're going to find a reason to be afraid of just about any food you could find.
0: Mm-hmm. There was a. Do you remember the article written um, a while back? It was a. It was on my podcast. I'm blanking on his name, but it was uh, this idea that uh, plants are trying to kill you.
1: <laughs> they are. <laughs>
0: so, um, um,
1: Especially if you're an insect.
0: Moises, um, man, see, I have a bad brain. I've been damaged. I'm doing my best, though. So, anyways, these plants can't run. They can't hide. So, they... De- they develop defense mechanisms. This is the idea, right? Mm -hmm. And like you said, their goal is to not be devoured by an insect because that does not help the plant reproduce.
1: Yes. So any plants that didn't have some kind of defense against herbivores, including insects, was not going to make it very far in evolutionary history. And like you said, since they cannot run... Their strategy has been biochemical. They have ability to sense often if they have been moved or bitten. Um, there are toxins in, for example, I'm pretty sure the brassicas, cruciferous plants. Um, the, what makes the toxin is a reaction to being bitten and to compounds that were separate Come together and make a poison that will then kill an insect.
0: Mm-hmm. And then there's some thought that um, I'm going to sell the benefits of veg- vegetables, and that would be that it's not so much what they contain; it's what the reaction that your body produces. For mm-hmm. instance, there's no vitamin A. In a carrot, or if there is, it's marginal. And I don't believe there's any, but.
1: Not in the sense of retinol, the form that we use. The form
0: that we need, right. Yes. But our body uses that carrot, or the carrot causes a change in us, and then we have this resultant micronutrient that is essential for the eyes and whatever, many other functions in the body.
1: Vitamin A is an interesting one because I think it takes something like 12 to 24 times as much of the plant form to be the equivalent of the animal form that you can get, for example, in liver. And so if you were going to get all your vitamin A from plants, that's a lot of you would have to eat to get the equivalent nutrient amount. However, I've also, when reading about vitamin A, have discovered that our ability to absorb, it depends on our state of deficiency. And so there's upregulation in the ability to extract vitamin or to convert into vitamin A from the precursors, the more deficient we are. So it's, It's not as simple as it would be more convenient if it were.
0: Right. And also, we can't just um, go into deep nutritionism, where it's all these singular, isolated micronutrients, because they often work synergistically. Uh, Absolutely. Especially talking to someone like Chris Masterjohn, where he talks about the relationship between A, D, K, and potentially E and how these need to exist in some balance in order to for optimally.
1: Yes, yes, you're right. And so having more of one can sometimes be a detriment to the other. Um, Many nutrients seem to work that way from what I'm beginning to learn about it, Um, and that's true of of minerals too. So I think there's some kind of balance between potassium and magnesium or sodium and and potassium where um, if you just read somewhere that you need to get a lot of one of those and start taking an extraordinary amount, you can just throw everything out of whack. Or, or if one becomes reduced naturally, then your need for the other goes down. Relationships like that.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then the magic pill, <laughs> even though there is none, but the closest we have to it, perhaps, is meat. Um, you know, if you do any research on beef liver, or liver itself, these micronutrients, these vitamins, as we call them, uh, are all kind of already preset in the like perfect arrangement for us. This A, yes. D, and K, right? It's already there, and yes. readily. A- Bioavailable to us. You eat, yes. You eat liver. You don't need an activator.
1: So, it seems a bit <laughs> contrite to say it, but if you have an animal that's flesh is basically like ours, then it turns out that the nutrients that are in them are approximately the levels that we need for our flesh. And of course, that's not an argument for an herbivore to eat flesh because they they can't do they can't extract it that way. That's not the way they're built. But we are built to extract nutrients from meat, and so if we can, um, it's it's kind of perfect.
0: Yeah. So this is a lot to do with the uh, gut structure of the mammal.
1: Yes. Herbivores they're they're not really even though they're eating a lot of plant foods they're not getting energy from carbohydrates substantially they are also on very high fat diets it's just that what they do is they take in a lot of fiber they basically have to eat all day to get the amount cuz the the quality the so-called quality of the food meaning the ability to get energy and nutrients from it is so low that they just have to keep taking more and more in and then what happens is in their guts the bacteria is transforming that into fat so that they can also have the natural high fat diet that they need but we don't have the machinery for that anymore Mm
2: -hmm.
1: we we don't have a cecum to speak of our gut is very short we're not able to do what a gorilla can do in terms of getting fiber getting fat out of fiber and so if we can get it directly that's that's the way to get the energy and nutrition we need
0: yeah this reminds me of a I kind of I think I made a mistake one time on twitter talking to you of all people
1: oh my goodness (laughs) you made a mistake on twitter (laughs)
0: yeah I think I made some argument from some Michael Pollan book I read once about what is a carnivore are you know that humans are absolutely omnivorous and that's like a, a a definition of us right mm-hmm. and then we have to sort through you know there's all these arguments about dogs are, are dogs carnivores and then they throw around this term obligate carnivore always referring to cats right mm-hmm. uh, so could we, maybe we could talk a little bit about these terms and how does it fit in with uh, human metabolism
1: sure so there's definitely a technical sense in which we are omnivores meaning that we Have the ability to extract nutrients and energy from both plant-sourced foods and animal-sourced foods, but we fit the carnivore definition of obligate carnivore in the sense that there are nutrients in that are only obtainable in meat that we absolutely need, and so
0: we can say, for example, DHA. Or something yes,
1: uh, b twelve is often cited a pr- right. as a problem for vegans. Um and then there are ones that are more debatable, like the vitamin A that you brought up, um, saying how much how much can we really get? how much omega three can we really get from flaxseed when there is a conversion involved? Um, if just because there's a theoretical pathway doesn't mean we can activate it as much as we need.
0: So a human can be a carnivore?
1: It does. There is a definition of carnivore that fits a human. Um, Most people would not be satisfied with that as a definition for us Mm -hmm. because we're able to eat a, a wide variety of things. But we, because we, I argue, I know that there are people who would disagree with me, but I would argue that we need some meat, and that makes us carnivorous in that more limited sense. Okay. We also have the ability to eat a meat-based diet, as I am a testament to, at least for, for the almost eight years that I've done it. Um, but also there have been populations in recent enough past that we were able to view them that seem to eat very little plant matter um, just at limited times of year so most of their diet if not all of it came from eating meat whereas there are no there, there's no evidence yet that a vegan diet would be sustainable for a lifespan especially one that has to reproduce and create a sustained population. Mm
0: -hmm. And what about the fears of the scurvy, the the vitamin C paradox? This is something that we cannot um, make in, in our own bodies any longer, but perhaps we could in the past.
1: Right. So a vitamin is something that... A vitamin 2A species is something that they can't make. And so vitamin C isn't a vitamin to most species, but it is to us and to many primates and a few other species. We lost the ability to make it, and that means we have to get some in order to carry out basic bodily functions. However, the amount that we need, first of all, is a lot less than what the RDA says that we need because the RDA is not based on the amount we need to prevent scurvy. It's based on that plus a buffer that was decided upon by researchers who have the idea that antioxidants, the antioxidant function of vitamin C might be or is correlated with or can sometimes but not Consistently help with certain diseases. And so they think that maybe the level of vitamin C that we should be getting should be higher than what we know we <laughs> need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's my long winded way of saying that I, they're kind of making it up. Um, and in particular, we know that vitamin C competes with glucose for uptake in the cells and so if you're already eating a diet that's lower in sugar than um most people in our culture are doing it seems that the the need for vitamin C is is probably much much lower than the RDA interesting so but then the second component is the the it's the little known fact that fresh meat contains vitamin C it's not clear to me how long it lasts in a piece of meat. If you if you bought it from the store and it's been aged for a month, um, how, how much there is compared to when you first process it, I don't know. But definitely a fresh, uh, like a very fresh piece of beef that has been not cooked, you could get your daily amounts in less than two pounds to cover scurvy and it was it's been known for centuries that fresh meat would cure scurvy so it's not this isn't just speculative
0: interesting and it could be um this is also a a byproduct of uh, the fermentation process so perhaps properly aged meat may have extra vitamin c i do not know just a thought
1: hmm everything that i've read about it makes me suspect it's the opposite but mm-hmm. wouldn't it be interesting if there were actually a mechanism for that
0: i know you know um just the simple cabbage if you make sauerkraut that's why that increases
1: the vitamin c level right i didn't know that
0: this is what i'm here now i am not a scientist
1: but do you play one on a podcast
0: yes uh, Doc Fermento which uh, (laughs) so I uh, ferment things and um, I don't know there's just all these legends around uh, where words come from and um, there are historical stories of um, sailing vessels that would contain um, vats of kraut sour kraut and people Mm -hmm. became named krauts because of that and not just because mm-hmm. it was a big uh portion of their diet at home, but because it was on their sailing vessels. they didn't have access to fresh meat or citrus sailing these northern seas, right um, and from what I read, they think it was the sauerkraut
1: very interesting.
0: we could do some work on that and see if it's true. I don't yeah, I honestly do not know. I've probably said it is true a thousand times, but eh, <laughs> live and learn. <laughs> it didn't kill anyone telling them to eat sauerkraut, so it's a no harm.
1: Agreed. Micronutrients are interesting, though, because I think they were discovered recently, and before that, the germ theory of disease was new and exciting and was expected to be able to explain everything. And so then it was it was big news when we first started discovering that there were some diseases that could be, um, you know, induced and cured via deficiency and replenishment of a certain micronutrient. And that set off a whole study and obsession with micronutrients as the, the key to nutrition. However, the the rdas that we have developed are all all of them have different methodology be- behind trying to find out how much we need obviously we don't want just the minimum amount usually of something to prevent outright disease usually <laughs> right, the the right. tox the toxic level is usually quite a bit higher and and you don't have to you don't have to try to not get any more than the minimum <laughs> but on the other hand those all of those tests were developed with people on our modern western diets and so as soon as you change what a person is eating and you you a very big metabolic change is going from a high carb diet to a low carb diet because it's not just a matter of of you know calories it's it's a whole a whole difference in the way your cell is extracting energy and so it would be it would be very very surprising if that didn't have an effect on what what nutrients you needed to support that cuz most most vitamins what they seem to do is they're they're a catalyst for a reaction that's necessary somewhere in the metabolic process And so if you don't have enough of it, that enzyme or you have an enzyme and you have that vitamin and it gets used up in the process of making energy somewhere along the line. So if you're making energy from a different pathway, then you're going to have different micronutrient needs. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So I, I kind of think the whole thing needs to be revisited. You can't just say, oh, well, we found that you need 10... Milligrams of vitamin C a day to prevent scurvy on a high-carb wheat-based diet, and therefore, when you remove all the wheat, you still need 10 milligrams. That might be, it might be just completely uncorrelated.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. That's and this dives back into this problem with nutritionism. This isolating these vitamins and and then as long as we have um, some suitable amount of them re-added to some crappy food like you know the fortification of grains then we're supposed to be fine
1: right right it's the same with formula as you brought up earlier trying to reconstruct what's in breast milk by vitamin Um, You know, that reminds me of a common argument I hear from people who insist that we need plants to be healthy. What they say is something like this. A plant, we have all these plants, and they are whole foods that have nutrients in them, some of which we haven't even discovered, and therefore just saying that you have this other food that has the ones that we have, that we have identified are in that plant is never going to make up for eating that plant. But I see that as a, as a kind of cart before the horse fallacy yeah. that, uh-huh. that, <laughs> that we're trying to make, mi- why are we trying to mimic that plant? Um, why are we assuming that everything that's in that plant is necessary sometimes you eat something or you do something because there's something in it that's a benefit and you absorb the cost of the detriment to it. And that's what I think is going on with plants. They're full of toxins. They're full of fiber, which we can barely digest ourselves. Although some of our evolutionary ancestors certainly had that ability, but we don't have nearly that extent anymore. So now we're, eating a plant that comes along with all kinds of stuff that either is useless or worse um, to get some nutrients that we can use, I don't think that there's, it's warranted to say we should try to replicate that whole piece of food just because it was there.
0: Mm -hmm. And then uh, I think the follow-up argument then would be, well, all that aside, actually the role of plants is to feed the bacteria in our guts right if you don't eat produce and you are living a carnivore lifestyle is does is it detrimental to gut bacteria
1: well I think it's detrimental to some gut bacteria but I don't think my suspicion is that those gut bacteria aren't really necessary um, I have definitely read of people having health improvements by feeding targeted feeding of bacteria, um, proliferating certain types over others. But I don't really see how it necessarily applies to someone who's not eating plants because very often those bacteria, the reason why you need them is to deal with the plants that you're giving them in the first place.
0: Mm-hmm. You actually Some, cur- maybe created this population.
1: Right, right. So a, a couple other points that I think are important in that discussion. One of them is there's is, there's evidence that one of the best ways that you can reset, so to speak, your your the health of your gut biome is to fast for a couple of days. And so I, if that's true, then I think what's happening there is that all the strains are are being depopulated and that's setting you up for a better environment rather than trying to um, eat some of this and eat some of that and, and get the exact right mix.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Evolutionarily, it seems to me, implausible that we would have a strong need for a bacteria that we needed to feed with a specific thing consistently or we would lose it out to other bacterial species because it it would only take one shortage of the plant in question for for that to be infeasible
2: mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. the other thing the other kind of evidence that has, influenced my thinking about it is studies of germ-free animals who are raised in an environment where it's a sterile environment so they have they actually have no bacteria to speak of in their gut. And so you would think that that would be a no-go. They would just wouldn't survive, but actually they do better than their wild counterparts. They live longer, they're more energetic, they uh, seem to have better mood. I've heard people argue that they're more um, anxious but I've seen evidence to the contrary of that so that may be more there maybe there needs to be more teasing out of what anxious means or something along those lines mm-hmm. but if if you're if you're gonna take a a rodent and take away its gut bacteria and have it be more healthy than your standard baseline. It gives one pause at, at the very least.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I know. Um, after talking to um, uh, David, uh, the, he goes by Wolverine. He had oh like yeah, bowel his bowels removed basically, and he lived for a while with uh, basically no intestines whatsoever. Um, you talked to him? How fascinating. Yeah, he's on a, one of the older podcasts, uh, maybe in the 60s or something like that. But um, And uh, he said, well, he had um, his the end of his stomach. I, I don't remember the biological terms, you know, but um, basically just sticking right out of him. And um, anything that was done in his stomach would just come right out of his body and he could see it all. And he said if he ate broccoli, it would end up in the bag. Just broccoli. Just chewed broccoli. <laughs> Nothing would happen to it. And he thought, that's probably not, like, great, right, <laughs> for him. Because he needs yeah. nutrients, and he needs things broken down, like, in his stomach. But he yeah. said when he would mm-hmm. eat meat, it would just come out as just what, you know, what they call chime. Basically, chime, exactly yeah. what the, the guts need. It was just completely pulverized. Yes. Enzymatic action. Citric acid. Right. I think enzymes are a, a huge thing um, that don't get talked enough about, except by vegans. They're all about enzymes, uh, especially like, you know, raw vegans, the magic of the enzymes. But there's a, there's a lot to it. It's really great. Um uh, I learned most about enzymes from um studying um of all things um quantum biology. Wow. Yeah. There's a really awesome book um called Life on the Edge. It's a biologist and a physicist who wrote this book about what is currently known about quantum biology. Um and they they talk extensively about the role of enzymes. Um that's why you know when someone's having some health problems um one of the first courses of action um, a wise health practitioner might recommend are digestive enzymes. Mm-hmm. They're they're inexpensive, sold over the counter, and people get remarkable results with those.
1: Fascinating. It's so the, It's the opposite biochemically. Of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Digestive enzymes are their enzymes are basically Reaction enablers or catalysts, right? That's right. right? They,
0: they are the key, exactly. They cause or allow the transformation um, into the thing that we need. Mm-hmm. Um, I highly recommend that very strange book, Life on the Edge. <laughs>
1: I've just written it down.
0: Because uh, for one reason, um, anything quantum is total woo. I mean anyone talking about quantum this or that, they're usually nuts like Dr. Jack <laughs> Cruz or someone like that talking about taking photons in through the mouth, you know, uh, just total insanity. But this is a different book. It's, it's not, um, some woo and mysticism. So
1: yeah, I see what, what you're saying. That word quantum, I think has been, co-opted by people who are eager to find an explanation for phenomena that don't fit our day-to-day science and they so they call in Mm -hmm. the magic quantum
0: (laughs) theory (laughs) to explain it because we don't have it um, completely nailed down it's still existing in this magical realm Uh, whereas in the future it, it will just be known technology you know that difference between magic and
1: technology—it's <laughs> so elusive.
0: So, what was my point? Um, a lot of people fear eating meat. That it, uh, you know, uh, what what are the myths? Like, you you the average adult has three pounds of meat in their guts. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> these are—that's just wrong. <laughs> If you go for a colonoscopy, they will tell you not to eat seeds for like two to four weeks before for best results. Wow. Because because those do stick around.
1: I didn't know that. Yeah, those those They get kind of stuck in the villi or something?
0: Absolutely. They're in there. Yeah.
1: Seeds don't like to be digested. (laughs) I mean... They if like a plant's going to gonna they, put any right. extra mile into part of it not being eaten, it's the seed.
0: Seeds are the magic. They're, they're, they're seeds are insane. I I I love seeds. They're 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 totally crazy and I don't eat them. <laughs> but I lie because I eat rice. So <laughs> We my kids talk about we you know, we have these conversations constantly about but it's a seed, Daddy. <laughs> uh, and they're right. <laughs> I'm like, good for you. Eat up. Shut up. It's okay. I'm pouring <laughs> broth over it and butter. <laughs> <laughs> but you said, we don't eat seeds. I'm like, ah, oh, have some nuts. I think those are seeds, too. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's going on anymore. <laughs> So how do you raise some kids now? Like, well, how are you feeding them day to day and uh, what's your approach?
1: Well, it's complex cuz the older they get, the more they are they have access to food outside the house. It's mm-hmm. it's really kind of mind-blowing how much food there is just in public schools. I think they're There are snacks given out constantly and they're usually just like a muffin type thing or a granola bar or, you know, fruit gets the halo. So, you know, they might not be given candy, but they're given concentrated sugar that came from fruit. So it's all natural as opposed to cane sugar, which came from, I don't know exactly. I think (laughs) that might be a plant. Um,
0: (laughs) No sugar added and it's... Pure dates. Yeah. Right,
1: yeah. right. No cane sugar added. it. So it's, for my older two children, it's basically out of my control. I try to feed them the most nutrient-dense and, and healthy food that they can have when they're at home so that they're less prey to <laughs> being hungry when they're being offered this stuff. Yeah, but you're releasing a
0: well-nourished child out into the wild.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. I do kind of consider it a lost cause, and I, I understand that they need to explore. So I feel for my older children, my role is to help them to know what they need to do if health problems start showing up when they're an adult. Basically, Mm. like they're going to go out and eat all the stuff. And one day they may have an issue. Um, If they're lucky, it's just obesity. Um, Something that's more of a vanity problem than something that's acutely hurting them. Mm -hmm. And then they'll say, "Wow, what am I going to do about this? I know what to do about this.
0: Yeah, you've had these examples set at home. Uh, You've established some food rules, some Eating. Uh, do you place an emphasis on meal times or meals? We always together? have.
1: We always have breakfast and usually supper together.
0: I think that's great.
1: Yeah. Um, I know it's. I know it's. And it's just, not just about the food; mm-hmm. it's the time to talk.
0: It, it is, and it becomes increasingly impossible. So, a breakfast is a great time to catch them because you all wake and you're 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 trapped there before they exit the door, so.
1: <laughs> also, they're not allowed to eat any computer or to play any computer games until their breakfast is finished, so. Nice rule. A good rule. Yeah. It's a mad world.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I have, uh, yeah, the kid thing is, uh, is a, is, it's a huge thing, and, um, I think I've done a pretty good job brainwashing my kids into a (laughs) healthy, whole foods kind of uh, paradigm, you know, in their minds. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't feel bad about that whatsoever. And then I, like you said, I do realize that once they go out, um, they're on their own. I'm not there. so, And I don't hang a noose around their neck of guilt or anything like that either. Mm-hmm. You know, I that's recommend good. I recommend trying things and then making that's their own a decisions.
1: F- fast track to an eating disorder, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, have you had fun? Was this good uh, for you? Absolutely. Okay, good. How how's about it? you? Uh, I'm, I feel really great. Yeah. Um, so, how's the music thing going for you? Is that fun?
1: I love music. I've always loved music, and it's only been in the last couple years that I have allowed myself to really play with that love in my own way instead of just listening or watching other people. So Mm -hmm. I'm singing backup vocals in a band, and I just started taking bass lessons, which is really fun. Uh, Electric, uh, I will have an acoustic electric bass guitar. Mm And I love, I've, I have a little bit of a background in music theory because it just suits my math loving mind too. <laughs>
0: uh-huh. And
1: so it, it all fits together in a very pleasing way. Very cool. Yeah.
0: Bass playing chicks are hot too, so.
1: <laughs> there is that. <laughs> <laughs>